You're listening to the Charter Nation Podcast. This is the Charter Nation Podcast. You're You're listening to the Charter Nation Podcast. Brought to you by the California Charter Schools Association. This is the Charter Nation Podcast. I'm your host, Anna Tintopoulos. For the past several weeks, the California Charter Schools Association has been celebrating and reflecting on Native American Heritage Month by honoring California's indigenous peoples and recognizing their contributions to our state's history. Today, roughly 3,000 Native American students attend charter public schools in California. In just a bit, you'll hear from the leader of a unique charter public school in Los Angeles that's working to incorporate indigenous wisdom, culture, and language into lesson plans. Then later, the holiday season is officially here, a time when many folks give thanks for the simple things in life, like having a roof over their head. We'll introduce you to a charter public school educator in San Diego County who's spreading joy by teaching his students how to build tiny houses for people who can't afford a typical house in California. And finally, we end with a My View From Here audio commentary about a charter public school that's giving vulnerable students one of the greatest gifts of all a second chance at earning a high school diploma. So let's get to it. First up, the latest installment of our ongoing series called Changemakers. To cap our observance of Native American Heritage Month, we're bringing back a special Changemakers interview from season one, in which CCSA's president and CEO, Mirna Castrojon, sits down with Marcos Aguilar, one of the visionaries behind Anahuacalmicac International University Preparatory of North America. Anahuacalmicac is a charter public school with three campuses in East Los Angeles. It's one of the most unique charter schools because it focuses on indigenous cultures, histories, and native ways of knowing. Anahuacalmicac also partners with local tribes on social justice issues such as land rights. In fact, earlier this year, the charter school leveraged its grants and nonprofit funding to purchase a swath of undeveloped land in L.A. and returned it to the area's original inhabitants, the Gabrielino Shoshone Tribal Nation of Southern California. In this Changemakers interview, Mirna begins by asking Marcos how his childhood, growing up along the U.S.-Mexico border, influenced the work he does today as a charter school leader. Before we dive into the school and the special work that you're doing there, I want to learn, I want our audience to hear and learn a little bit more about you. You were born in Mexicali, in Baja California, Mexico, and grew up in Calexico. Tell me about what were your experiences uh, growing up that led you down this path and and commit yourself to transforming the education system? Uh, In my experience in public schools in in the border town of Calexico, and I went to school pretty much my whole life in Calexico uh, up till I was uh, 18, was one that was uh, a stark contrast because I can I had been weeded out at a certain point into a gifted um, kind of magnet approach uh, within my school, and and yet I kept falling into trouble because of the the personal challenges that I that I was confronted with. You know, my dad was a single dad. My grandmother was basically my mother and raised me uh, single handedly. Besides my dad, um, but I was the kind of kid that would go out to 
the the storm drains and uh, look for water insects and try to start a water collection. I I kind of raised myself in the local Carnegie Library, which was you know a one of a kind gem in in Calexico that that the Carnegie Foundation had established. Uh, and I had worked through both floors of the entire library by the time I got to middle school and high school. And so there was just a need to find other ways to to learn outside of the farm worker family environment that I grew up in. And so coming to Los Angeles was a completely different world for me. You know, it was a completely different exposure. But right away, we were brought into the the vibrant um, student life and student activism that was looking to bridge the gap between what they understood about the 60s social movement and what they understood about Reagan uh, politics and 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 um, and the imposition on on the worldviews in the universities at that time. And so that's that's really where our our educational reform work emerged. One of the things that has always struck me about your pioneering work, because let's let's let, let's just name it. Um, your approach is really unique. The, the, the forever we've had bilingual education, full immersion English education. Uh, there is work, important work that is happening in education and reservations with uh, other First Nations tribes. Um, but you have really carved a path for uh lifting up and affirming uh, native culture and language in an urban context, especially among uh, Latinos who um, are either rediscovering or anchored to uh, indigenous identities that are, are often glossed over. So tell me a little bit more about that aspect of the foundation of your school uh, that has now been thriving for close to two decades. It, it's located, for our listeners who don't know, in the northeast part of Los Angeles, a neighborhood called El Sereno. You and I were neighbors some years back. Um, what is it that you were trying to create there and carve that new path? We uh, we have decades of research behind the idea that, that American Indian students have a right to their unique language and culture uh, as a way of of, uh, of of approaching the curriculum and their academic studies, like that's that's no longer questioned. Um, it's federal policy, I would say, but that same right doesn't apply to indigenous peoples from other parts of the world. But if a student is an indigenous student from Guatemala, whose first maternal language is Quiche, uh, and they arrive in Los Angeles after that arduous travel the same logic should apply. They have a right to and would perform better in school if their language and culture is centered in the classroom and in the school. And it, when you extend that question about language rights and, and rights to culture, we can see that even within the second generation or the third generation, even the fifth generation, we ought to still re retain our right. Right? It's an inex inextinguishable right, an inalienable right, I would say, that we have a right to our maternal languages. And that's all that we're centering in on. Absolutely. And the fact that you're a charter school using those operational and instructional flexibilities to provide this very rich and needed uh, space is, is truly a model for the nation, certainly for Los Angeles and California. Can you talk to me a little bit, drill down into like, what does it actually look like in the school? Because you're, you're talking about a lot of context and language focus, but very few people actually know you're also an international baccalaureate program. You also offer instru instruction in Mandarin and in Chinese. You also uh, talk about the tensions and the and the opportunities to help our students be 
bridge builders, right? And occupy uh, those, uh, those, those multiple cultural spaces. What does instruction or academics look like uh, at, at Anahuacalmecac? Well, I, I, I had to come to terms many years ago with that. It looks very much like any other school. As radical as our vision may sound to some people, it's very much a school. And, and I think that that's something that, that I, I joke about coming to terms with because it, I, think, I think there's still more to, to, to evolve into. When we established the school, we had to find a, a place to be. And the place we found was an abandoned Masonic hall, an abandoned restaurant, and an abandoned library. And so that is where Semillas emerged. And within those walls, you know, we do our best to, to, um, to practice a social environment. I, that, that has been a constant in our philosophy of education, is that learning is social. That is something that, some, that happens through the interaction among people, in this case, between students and teachers and among students themselves, and parents and elders and guides. And, you know, that is something unique that we usually have an elder in residence that is a tribal member that is able to teach cultural knowledge. You know, in terms of the curriculum, we became the first public, noted by the International Baccalaureate, the first public uh, world school in the city of Los Angeles. And so when we talk about international education, we ought to include indigenous nations as distinct peoples. We're very specific about where the knowledge comes from and whose knowledge that is and how we carry that with respect and honor. And we've created a course list, uh, uh, including UC-approved A through G courses in Nahuatl. We're the only school in the country that has UC A through G approved courses in Nahuatl. Our families care that their child can speak to their grandparents. They care that when they're in college, they can continue their course of study, as many of our students have in universities, to continue studying Nahuatl, with Nahuatl being an emerging area of study in universities. Well, uh, on that note, uh, it's been 20 years since your, since your school opened its doors to the community of El Sereno. Uh, and certainly it's been, uh, there's been a lot of ups and downs. Um, but uh, you're certainly leading a way to a, a different consciousness and a, a different way of thinking about education and affirming our, our students. Um, uh, you, you've always referred to your school also informally as Semillas del Pueblo. We are seeds, I remember. You always uh, uh, say to your students and, and talk about the beautiful transformation that occurs when seeds grow. Briefly tell us, what, how will your work continue to nurture those seeds in our community? You know, some people describe their success as putting themselves out of business. I, I don't know that I'm exactly interested in putting ourselves out of business as much as uh, making sure that aspects of what we uh, describe are important are included in the lives of all the children that, that need access to that culturally centered and community-based approach. And, and we're finding you know, allies to do this, you know, and, and I think that that's really important. The fact that we've been co-founders of an Indigenous Education Now coalition that includes uh, important organizations like the California Native Vote Project that is supported by the Native American Indian Commission and that is inclusive of Indigenous students that are not American Indian tribally enrolled but are from Latin America in particular is extremely important. And, and the goal there really is to make sure and indigenized public education, because we, we know that our children are all going to be going to different types of schools, but we want to make sure that they have access to the to the cultural resources that they need. And, and that I think a, a second goal is uh, an international goal, and that is to, to strengthen education in Nahuatl. Uh, the, the, the relationship between the language cannot be stronger here 
if we don't have strong foundations in Mexico and native uh, fluent communities that also don't have access to it. So we have a uh, focus both locally and internationally. Well, that sounds like um, uh, the, the, the makings of the next 20 years for uh, Anahuac Almeca, Marcos. Uh, thank you so much for all the work you're doing. I'd like to thank my good friend and guest, Marcos Aguilar, Executive Director of Anahuac Almeca International University Preparatory of North America. I dare you to pronounce it. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much for your dedication and passion, Marcos. Uh, I'm Mirna Castrejon, and you've been listening to a special edition of Changemakers. If you'd like to learn more about Anahuacalmicac International University Preparatory of North America, please visit its website at anahuacalmicac.org. The spelling there is A-N-A-W-A-K-A-L-M-E-K-A-K dot org. You're listening to the Charter Nation podcast. I'm your host, Anna Tintakalis. During the holiday season, we often pause to reflect on what we're grateful for. Having a place to call home tops the list for many people. But owning a home is still out of reach for many individuals and families living in California. One charter public school helping alleviate the problem at a local level is the Learning Choice Academy, a public hybrid charter school in San Diego County. For the past four years, high school students enrolled in its career tech program have been building and selling tiny houses as part of its tiny house project. Now, to help you visualize this, a tiny home is even smaller than an affordable dwelling unit, or ADU. The average size of a tiny home is between 100 and 400 square feet and is placed on a foundation or it can be placed on wheels. A tiny house still has all the essentials like a bathroom, kitchen, living room, but costs way less than a typical home in California. Travis Nixon is one of the three instructors teaching students how to build these pint-sized dwellings at the Learning Choice Academy. Let's revisit a story we aired in season one, which featured Travis and one of his students. We pick it up with Travis explaining that when he was a teenager, his school's career tech program kept him from dropping out. Now he's paying it forward. That was an absolute lifeline. I'm definitely a hands-on person. That's how I understand the world. Travis now engages other learners who are just like him. He's a fourth-generation electrical contractor. But despite all of his experience, once he told students they were going to build a tiny house, their big question was... Is this actually going to work? I'm happy to report that absolutely. High school students work alongside industry professionals, gaining job skills in construction, green technology, and engineering. They learn how to use power tools, install drywall and solar power energy sources. Now, most students jumped at the chance to tackle this project, but there were a few students who weren't so excited at first. I, I was scared. I didn't want to use a saw. I didn't want to drill anything. That's Isabel Hinojosa. Um, but it definitely took some consistency of learning how to do those things, and you eventually get into like a rhythm of like doing them over and over again that you get pretty good at it. 
and now she is one of the biggest cheerleaders of the Tiny House Project. Isabel says students also learn about teamwork, cooperation, and communication. I'm definitely more of an introverted person, um, but definitely throughout the Tiny House, I was able to learn more about what it takes to be a really great leader um, and how you need to have that communication with your peers or else that's when things go wrong. And it's once you have those set of skills that you're able to achieve things much faster or get to your goal on time. Travis Nixon, the instructor, says, in the end, that's what this project is all about, teaching students about the power of courage and consistency. Having the courage to step through those doors, showing up even if you don't feel like it. You know, and the courage plus consistency, you know, you come out of that with confidence. And when you're a confident person, I mean, there's nothing you can't do. Like selling a tiny house, which is yet another aspect of this project. Isabel says knowing someone would actually live in the tiny house she was building was a huge motivator. I would take progress photos. I like to, I would take a picture after every session almost. And then I would send them to my family and I was like looking back on them one day and I was like, wow, we, we've gotten really far. So that was exciting. And Travis says one of the highlights for him is when they had to transport the very first tiny house they built under a bridge to its new location after it was purchased. So I was in the vehicle behind the towing vehicle and watching that thing go under that. I was like, oh, my gosh, you know, is everything OK? The house made it. Travis says he's thankful the Learning Choice Academy is using its flexibility and autonomy to reimagine education. And that's really one of the advantages of charters is the decision-making process is a couple people deep, not, you know, innumerable echelons of uh, things working at cross-purposes. So that's why we were able to just start this program up at TLC and hit the ground running and start helping kids. Isabel Hinojosa agrees, and she hopes other schools will do the same thing. Because it not only helps them to develop those um, characteristics that you need, such as leadership, but it also brings not only good memories, but you're able to be outside doing something. And I think that it's a really good idea for other students to do as well, because it personally really helped me to develop into a better person. The Learning Choice Academy's Tiny House Project received national recognition earlier this year. Travis Nixon and his colleagues, Casey Desmond and Jason Foyer, were awarded a $12,000 grant from Voya Financial to support the Charter School's Career Tech Program and the Tiny House Initiative. From CCSA, we want to say way to go, Travis and team. If you'd like to learn more about the Learning Choice Academy, head over to the school's website at learningchoice.org. That's learningchoice, one word, dot O-R-G. I'm Anna Tintagoulis, and you're listening to the Charter Nation podcast. Personalized learning is a topic we've covered before on the podcast. While there are different approaches out there, generally speaking, charters that specialize in personalized learning are now commonly referred to as flex-based charter public schools, and they customize the learning experience for students according to their unique skills, abilities, preferences, and experiences. Now, the Learning Choice Academy, which we featured in the last segment, is an example of a charter school that offers personalized learning programs. 
Another prominent charter public school network that specializes in personalized learning is Learn for Life. Its mission is to curb the state's high school dropout rate by offering some of the most vulnerable students another chance to get their high school diploma through a flexible, independent study option. In this My View From Here audio commentary, we hear from Skip Hansen, co-founder and president of Lifelong Learning, the nonprofit which manages the Learn for Life network. He says personalized learning is a critical part of the state's K-12 public education system because it's transforming the lives of countless students who've given up hope. So our average student is 17 and a half years old. We serve them until they're 22 what I would consider at risk of dropping out if they haven't already dropped out of school. Pregnant or parenting, wards of the state. It's a very unique population that not a lot of school districts can or want to help um, because mainly because they've aged out and after 18, the school districts really don't have a vehicle to keep serving these kids. So we have a really great relationship with probably close to 300 high schools and their counselors. When they have a student identified that really is just not fitting in in the normal school system, especially if they're 17 or older and the district really isn't gonna keep them on for another couple of years, they refer them to us. We're happy to take those kids and start the process of dealing with their traumas uh, and also then uh, creating a personalized learning plan uh, for each individually to get them across the finish line to what we hope will be at least a high school diploma and in the best case, an opportunity to go to college and or a really nice opportunity to get a job training in something where they can actually make some really good income in today's world. Many of them come in with enough credits that they might be with us maybe six months to a year. And I will note in our program, that plan changes quite often, unfortunately, because of things like um, homelessness, right? We have kids that whose parents, uh, we probably 80% Latino in most of our schools, who move quite often. And so we have close to 70 locations in California, which allows the migration of students to maybe go from Lancaster to Silmar uh, and back and forth and still not upset this child's opportunity for an, a personalized learning education through our model. One of the things we're seeing in our schools is a, a surgence of students who wouldn't have typically looked at a Learn for Life model, but now post-pandemic are really seeing that the model that we offer is really just about the opportunity to move faster or slower, depending on where they're at academically, because we meet them where they are. So, uh, yeah, Learn for Life is not just serving um, only kids that are bad or, you know, that people perceive as to be trouble. Uh, and also remember this, we are not a punishment school. One of the things when we get our WASC accreditation, every time they come in and interview kids that the WASC, uh, people on the WASC committee are fascinated by is that these kids uh, might have been forced to go to a continuation school and it didn't work, but then they realize they can't get a job, they can't join the military, they can't do anything with a high school diploma, and they come into our schools hat in hand because they want to be there. This is their last shot, and they realize it, and they really, really want to do well, and then we have some amazing teachers, which I'll, that's the last thing I'll say is these teachers of ours, I just, I'm blown away. They carry so, I mean, all teachers do. I mean, every school, public charter, but these teachers truly are working with kids who are having so much trauma and these, these teachers are just amazing and they become life mentors before they're ever a teacher because they just have to solve so many problems at home. That was Skip Hansen, president and co-founder of Lifelong Learning, a nonprofit that manages the Charter Public School Network 
Learn for Life, with 70 campuses in California. To learn more, visit its website, learnforlife.org. That's learn, the number four, life.org. And that wraps it up for this episode of the Charter Nation podcast. Check back with us next month when we take a charter school road trip across California, bringing you stories of charters that are reimagining public education. Until then, I'm your host, Anna Tentakoulis. As always, thanks for listening.